Welcome to Pop Culture Retro, which was recently voted the 15th best podcast by the residents of the Golden Years Retirement Community in Boca Raton, Florida. Each show, we'll revisit some of your favorite pop culture memories with insider and outsider perspectives. Now, please help me welcome your hosts, Ike Eisenman and Jonathan Rosen. Hello and welcome to another edition of Pop Culture Retro. Today, we are thrilled to welcome a prolific actor, someone with more than 200 credits to his name, has had parts in some of the most beloved films of all time. He's a multi-published author, Tony Award-nominated actor, played in a band with Stevie Ray Vaughan, and in my opinion, should have a part in every movie ever made because he would just make that film so much better for having him in it. Please help us welcome Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. You bet, Jonathan, from your lips to somebody's ears. <laughs> you know, when I had my last audition, you know, when oh. I had my last audition? When? Five years ago. It's hard to say with, with the pandemic, five years ago. And so, you know, you, you talk to the managers, it all, it all begins in college when you're like doing your resume and you do something for the film students in the theater class. I played man crossing football field, which was one <laughs> of my first credits on my resume, man crossing football field. And the great notices for that, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you. You know, you start <laughs> off with those things, and then you inch your way up into doing theater, and and you you do like plays, and you you come to California with like I played uh, the gentleman caller in the Glass Menagerie. I played Tom in the Glass Menagerie because uh, I was in two productions of the Glass Menagerie. I I was in the importance of being earnest. And the agent looks at this from my face and says, oh, we don't care about any of this stuff. We don't care. We don't care about plays. Really, really, this is, this is a waste. Have you done any movies? I go, well, no, that's why I need an agent. So then you come out to California. We're, we're moving to act two of this story now. So you come out to California and you actually do some TV shows and movies and you put those on there. And then your agent says, well, can you go through and make a reel? Of, yeah, of your yes. of your stuff because you know the the casting people they don't want to look at your resumes you know it's it's too complicated you know got all these names so yeah so then you hire someone to make a reel of all your stuff so then you get the reel out there and then it's been five years since you've had an audition and I call my manager and and my agent I said it, it what, what can I get on and they they go Stephen you don't need to audition. That's what we would ask. You, you, don't, <laughs> yeah. you don't need to audition, man. I, and I go, but my real, no, no, nobody cares. He says, everybody has seen you in everything you're probably <laughs> going to do. So don't worry about it. Just put all that behind you and just wait for Jonathan Rosen to say, <laughs> this man should be in, <laughs> in every movie. I haven't been. I haven't been. I've been sitting here in COVID, just waiting, waiting for that phone to ring. No, oh no, no. You, I've been doing Goldberg's. I, I, in no. fact, I'm doing Goldberg's this next week. Thank God. Oh, that that might be one of the questions we're going to ask as well. <laughs> Uh-oh. Okay. Well, let me have it. 
No, well, first, <laughs> we start with, I said, you know, Ike and I were talking before you came on. We're, we're both huge fans. And we're like, where do you even start an interview? <laughs> you have so, you've been in so many things. And that's, so we'll, we'll get to all of them, but we want to know, like, the first thing we wanted to do, were you, did you have interest in acting as a child? Or is this something that came later on? I think I had acting interest as a child, and I was trying to, not thinking you were going to ask that, but I was asking friends of mine today, uh, when did you first want to become an actor? And I think I wanted to become an actor, I think, when I was about five. I And I saw Godzilla when I was about two and a half. That was one of the first movies I saw, and I did not know it was a movie. I thought it was a documentary. Oh I thought I wow. thought that these things were real, and, and I was terrified. And over the next two and a half years of trauma, from two and a half to five, <laughs> I thought, you know, dealing with the Frankenstein monster, big deal. Dealing with Wolfman, big deal. Dracula mummy is a big deal. All these guys are out there lurking. But if I became an actor, I could hang out with all of these people and become their friends and not be so scared of them. And Godzilla could teach me things. We, we could become buddies. So I think I my earliest memory of wanting to be an actor was when I was about five, because I thought it would make me be friends with monsters. And that, that was the real reason. And, and so I wanted to be in, I was in school plays in elementary school, junior high, and in high school. High school, I serious, I got very sick when I was, see, this is, this is a thing out there. It's, it's always the, the, the horrible things in our life that kind of open doors. And we and when the horrible things happen, we don't know the doors opening. You know, we only know the horrible things happening. So when I just turned 13, I had this terrible thing of internal bleeding. Oh, wow. And, and my parents thought I had cancer. They thought I was dying. They took me to all sorts of doctors. I was on all sorts of medication. I couldn't play. I couldn't do football like everybody does in Texas. I couldn't go in gym class, which was great. You know, <laughs> at that point, you know, God, keep me out of gym class. And they put me in study halls. I think at one point, for real, I had four study halls a day in school. Uh, it, it was that much study hall. So I thought I have to do something with my time. And I thought, let me read some plays. And I began reading, of all things, I think I was 13, I pulled out King Lear. And I go, what is this play? And I started reading this, and I'm going like, I understand this. Mm. And Albany says, I think it's Albany who says, who is it that can say this is the worst? Yeah, mm. I know what that means. I know what this means. Uh, how s sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. Yeah, that's what my mother says to me all the time. This is where it came from, and she never read King Lear. You know, and I'm going like, I understand this. Maybe I should focus on drama, which my doctor said I could do. So then I focused mainly on doing plays in high school, and I asked my dearest, dearest Valentine Ann, my wife, I said, how many plays did you do in high school, baby? 
I call her baby. I'm allowed to do that. <laughs> and we've been married 33 years. So I said, how many, how many plays did you do in high school? And she said, one. During all of high school, one. We did seven a year. Oh, wow. So between my sophomore year and my senior year, I had done like 15, 15 18 plays. In school, I'd had that much experience doing plays. I'd been in play competitions. You are looking, you guys probably didn't know this. This, this will impress you. I won the award as best actor in the state of Texas. Oh, wow. In the Scholastic <laughs> One Act Play Contest. My junior year, my junior year, I felt like Michaela Schifrin. My junior year, I was there and I won for the, we did the Trojan women and I played the dual role of Talthibius, the Greek soldier with a heart and Poseidon, God of the deep. And for that, I won best actor in the state of Texas, which I put on my resume when I came out to California. And the, the agents look at this. What is this? Best actor in the state of Texas. What is yeah, this? That's, we that's, don't care about, we don't care about like, this. That sounds like one of those resumes that I used to meet actors who made up their resumes, you know, and would just come up with titles and things like that and, and awards and accolades. That almost sounds like one. It, it almost, I the first agent I got, I don't want to jump your question, the first agent I got in California, her name was Carol Farrell. And I thought like, well, that's a cool agent name. And she said, well, I can't represent anyone named Stephen Tobolowsky because no one will hire you. You have to change, you, you, you know, <laughs> no one would cast you. And I said, well, who would they cast? What is a name they would cast? And she said, Steve Adams. Oh, I said, Steve Adams, okay. So my first resume, and I have it in a box somewhere, is Steve Adams. And I said to Carol Farrell, I said, <laughs> if you get me a job as Steve Adams, I will become Steve Adams. And I told my mom and dad, I may become Steve Adams. And they said, <laughs> we don't care. <laughs> That's whatever, whatever you say, pal, you know, whatever works. And the first phone call I got from Carol Farrell is she says, I think I may have a job for you. How tall are you? And I said, six, three. She said, can you be six, eight? Oh my Lord. I have and heard, I said, I, I could be six, this. eight in six inch heels. If if I wore Cthorni, which which I wore as Poseidon, god of the deep, you know they wore those uh, high heel things. So yeah, no. But I think early on is when I wanted to be an actor, and now I look backwards and I see all these doors closed and others open that kind of led me toward acting. Mm. That's great. Well, now you won best actor. I also read now that you won a story writing contest for the entire city of Dallas. <laughs> so. Well, it was, I, I was in sixth grade and I really don't know how, and, and it was not an original story. Uh, I, I read a story in one of our readers that I thought was fantastic. And the, it was about the ghost ship. And uh, it was a fantastic story how they found this frigate off the coast of Africa and 
it was filled with food, uh, clothes, people, people's belongings, no people. Mm. And they had no idea where the people went, where mm. they went. And it took modern science to realize that there is a subterranean river that runs under the Sahara Desert. And subterraneanly, sand goes into the ri river under Africa uh, and blocks the entrance. And when there's enough pressure, the subterranean river blows the sand out and it happened to catch this ship and lift it out of the water. And the people had no idea what had happened. They were terrified that suddenly they were being raised out of the water. So all the people got out of the water, got out of the ship and left and made their way oh, wow. to the coast of Africa. And then the sand submerged again and the ship got set free. So that's the story I told. And man, I went through district, through city, through whatever. And I ended up winning uh, first place in the storytelling contest. But again, it was not my original story. It was just something I'd read. Just mm. ripped it off. Multifaceted well, person. Yes. It's yeah. amazing. Our world is kind of amazing. Yeah. Oh, for sure. No, no for sure. we have we have to ask about, you know, with Stevie Ray Vaughan, you kind of bad what was that like? Oh, well, let me see. Let me see. Hold it. Now okay. I, I was not sure you were gonna ask this, but I happen to have this close by. Um <laughs> Well, it's not that close by. Here's the album. Oh, wow. Here's the album right here. Here it is. And uh, <laughs> here's our picture. It oh, is wow. close by. So <laughs> here I am oh, right there. There's Steven There's Stevie Ray. He's playing our lead guitar. There's Bobby Foreman. He was the only person in the group that really had talent except for Stevie Ray Vaughan. Uh, and also there's uh, Chris Lingwall, there's Mike McCullough on the bass, Chris Lingwall back there on the drums. They're good too. In fact, I think, I know Mike is still a musician, uh, but but we we were not that good. Bobby was. Now, Bobby was one of those freaky musicians that could play any instrument in the world, and he had a wonderful voice, and he ended up in the New Christie Minstrels. Oh, wow. So hmm. he was really talented. Wow. Now... Through Bobby's connections, I think, we were asked to uh, play a couple songs on this album, A New High. I, I, now, we had no idea this was a reference to marijuana. We lived in Texas. <laughs> a New High. And, uh, yeah. and so... We're on our way to the studio, and, and uh, Bobby says, well, I've asked uh, Steve Vaughn uh, to, you know, uh, play lead guitar on our uh, songs. We're doing two songs on this album. I go, you're asking, wait, Stevie Vaughn? Wait, how old is he? And Bobby says, well, he's like 14 or so. You know, uh, you know Jimmy's younger brother. I go, I know, I know. I mean... <laughs> They were kids from the neighborhood, Jimmy and Stevie mm. Vaughn. You know, they were, they, they were kids that we knew. And I said, listen, Bobby, we don't need any little kids playing our, on our album with our good, we could play our own guitars. I was feeling like the monkeys, you know, outraged <laughs> that people were saying we didn't play our own guitars. 
uh, my hats off to Mike Nesmith. What a great talent. Yeah. At any rate, Bobby turned around in the front seat of the car. We're on our way to Tempo's two studios, and he says, Stephen, shut up. This kid, Stevie Vaughn, he's so good, he's going to make us sound like we know what we're doing. <laughs> so anyway, we get to Tempo 2 Studios, and uh, Stevie is there sitting there. He goes, so guys, you want to... <laughs> he's 14. Guys, you want to just play your song so I kind of hear what I'm doing or whatever? So we start playing uh, Red, White, and Blue, which was the first song we are going to record. These were original songs and uh stevie stops after i think maybe 10 or 12 seconds because okay okay i got it i got it so this is like a crappy song so what if i do like a crappy lead and then i go into a good lead and bobby said that sounds fine so anyway, we recorded this the way the Beatles recorded in the old day. We all stood around the microphone and all harmonized at the same time, one take. We did two takes of the entire song where we stood around the microphone and just did our harmonies. Then the uh, producer said, okay, kid, you want to get up and do your lead? And Stevie goes, sure. So, so Stevie gets up, pulls up his guitar, starts his crappy lead, which was quite good, certainly better than anything we could do. And then he goes like, do you want me to do Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix? And uh, the producer said, whatever you want. He says, oh, I'll do one of each. I'll do one of each. So he plays the crappy lead and then plays this lead that we're like, oh. I mean, it was stunning. And then he goes, uh, the, the engineer, uh, son, you want to do another one? Yeah, sure, sure, I'll do the Hendrix one now. And, and then he like does that. And now we're all like, I'm like, what is it, a fly on a wall? I'm, I'm like watching this scene. I'm standing up against the wall and beside me is the glass, the glass that goes back into the recording room. And I look back there and the engineer is like, <laughs> and he gets up and he runs and he runs to the side here and is yelling out the door. <laughs> so then I see all these grown-ups come in and they all start lining up like they're at the zoo looking at the orangutan, you know, uh, you know, when... <laughs> You know, it's exciting time for the orangutan. So they're all like looking like this. And Stevie gets, and the producer says, so son, you, you got another one? And he goes, Stevie goes, yeah, I could do this all day. And he stands up and he starts doing one of those leads where he goes low in the bass, then up high in the, and just do this. And he did about five leads. And I'm looking at the faces of these grownups. So I'm 19 at the time. I was actually a freshman in college when we got this record deal and and i was telling you know people later you know i may not be an actor this mm. could be the beginning of rock and roll for stephen <laughs> wow. rock and roll history and 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 so um i'm looking at the faces of these grown-ups and it was like watching somebody at a campfire when someone's telling an amazing story it was the look 
of awe. Mm. And I realized it was the first, in retrospect, it was the first time any of us in that room had seen the real thing. Mm. And by real thing, I mean genius. Yeah. We hadn't touched it in Dallas, Texas yet, but we did in that little recording room. So here it is. Cast of thousands. Wow. Dee, 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 dee. My gosh, that is yeah. incredible. That is incredible. Yep, that's true. Sad but true. Yeah, amazing, amazing but true. It's I, you know, I feel so privileged, even in my own career, to have had been around genius talent before it was discovered at the very beginning. And and you you feel it. It's like this visceral thing. You get tingly all over. At least I do and you recognize it instantly there's just simply no doubt about that so i mean yeah. so okay so now you're potentially a rock star but then you decide you're going to uh haul your cookies out to hollywood I, and i had another door career. close i had ah. another door close on me okay i was going to be a rock star i'm in the drama department at smu and then my sophomore year we had new acting teacher come in and the acting teacher at SMU, for some reason, took an intense dislike of me. Oh, God. And she uh, tried to get me thrown out of the department. And she oh. went even further. Of, and this was a battle that went on for three years. And mm. it in, involved a great deal of subterfuge on her part and of wheelie dealing. And, and so my junior year at SMU, I was not cast in anything. And, and she said that she was going to refuse to, I couldn't be in the professional acting curriculum. Uh, I couldn't take any of those classes, but I went to them anyway, because I had signed up for them. And she refused to teach me. So I would turn in my assignments and they come back ungraded my essays, my papers, everything came back ungraded. I'd raise my hand. She never called on me. I never got scenes in class. I didn't get cast in plays. So what I did is, as that door closed and I got angry, uh, I went out and got my equity card in Dallas and started acting professionally, which mm. really made her angry. And then I knew, <laughs> I knew, because I grew up in Oak Cliff, I grew up with a lot of bullies. I, I, I am not, I see a bully coming. I've seen him coming. I had a kid put a pitchfork in my foot when I was oh, like man. seven. Mm. You know, I see it coming. They murdered our cat. You oh, know, the, these are like, I've seen it. I've seen it. I know it in the face. I know it in their eyes. I know what they are. So they can't surprise you. A bully can only work by hijacking you. But if you see them coming, uh, so what I did was, and I thank God for this teacher. This teacher was so magnificent. I knew there was a problem. So I went to my theater history teacher, who no one liked theater history, and they didn't particularly like him. Everybody liked the acting classes. Uh, uh, Peter, uh, Peter Graham White, and uh, I said, you may have heard about the problem I'm having with this teacher in, in school, and he kind of went, he's, and I said, is it possible for me to take the graduate exam early? 
And he says, there's nothing in the rule book that says you can't take it anytime you want. I said, will you give it to me? And will only you grade it? And if I pass, whatever, who knows, if you could just hold on to that test and not tell anyone about it at all until I'm a senior. So he said yes. And in the back of his classroom, when I was a year, a year and a half early, I took my graduate test at SMU. And um, a week later, he came by and said, passed it with flying colors. Mm. And I go, thank God. And then we said nothing more about it. And sure enough, six weeks before the end of my senior year, my my college counselor, the head of the department said, Stephen, I have terrible news. You're not going to be able to graduate. And I said, why, what? He says, it's Joan Potter. Um, she gave you an unsatisfactory critique uh, said that you had a bad attitude in her classes, and oh, so uh, that means you're going to be expelled from the department. And I go, yeah, but why wouldn't I graduate? I have the grades, I have the hours. He said, well, you won't be able to take the graduate exam. Mm. And I said, I've already taken it. He said, well, that's <laughs> impossible. We give it next week. I said, no, I took it a year and a half ago. Call uh, Anthony uh, Graham White. Call called Tony Graham White. He should have it in his office. And Tony came in, he called him, Tony came in with the test, put it down on the head of the theater department's desk, saluted me, and left. And wow. I graduated first in my class mm -hmm. uh, at SMU. So I can, it, but it was the door closing that made me get the, the equity card. So at this point now, I'm one of the few people at SMU who is actually has an equity card and now is getting professional credits in town because of, of Joan being such a biatch. You know, wow. my first Broadway show, first Broadway <clears throat> show I did in New York, The Wake of Jamie Foster, Joan Potter, this same teacher from Dallas, Texas, came to see the show and came backstage oh, wow. to see me <laughs> and said, no. you're still no good. <laughs> and she left. And and I went like, and I'm on Broadway and what? where are you? Yeah. Where are yeah, you I'm teaching sorry. now? Wow, I'm sorry, yeah. I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry, I, I have an evening you, show, maybe. If, if, yeah, I know, if you, you got into if, this theater because you bought a ticket at the box office. Yeah, yeah, you bought a ticket, baby. You bought a ticket to see me. Wow, you know, so oh my gosh, that is that is like, Boy, I, I can't even so, yeah that's that's evil. crazy yeah. that's yeah that's crazy. Uh, but that's but crazy. i have i have a, an amusing addendum to the story uh and that is before the pandemic my wife and i went to new york to see a play and this man came forward to me he says uh you you don't recognize me i'm john tillotson i was two years behind you at smu and I heard your story about what happened with you and Joan Potter. And she did the same thing to me. Oh. When I was in school, she did the same thing to me. And I didn't know any of this happened to you, but I ended up doing the same thing you did. 
I got my equity card, and I also graduated first in my class. Oh, my god! By going around her. Oh you, you know, so sometimes these doors that close, if, if you don't capitulate to the bully, mm -hmm. if you find a way to get around the bully, because there are a lot of bullies in the world. Oh, yep. God. Yeah. Did I answer your question? What yes. the hell was your question? So oh, long no, ago. no. I mean, look, this is a, this is the, the like the road yeah. to uh, to my question because because obviously you I mean you have to make a decision at some point that yes. you're going to go to Hollywood. You did go to Hollywood, and I always say I say this to everyone I hear this from about it is that's such, it's such a courageous thing to do to uproot yourself and take that big chance mm -hmm. to go to you know the pie in the sky <clears throat> opportunity. So. What was behind the decision and did you know well, people I think, there when you landed? I think, no, didn't know a soul. I did have a, my girlfriend and I went, so I did have a girlfriend and so mm -hmm. we were a couple. And our decision was remarkably simple. And that is we were too poor to be in a place that was cold. <laughs> and our teacher said, you got one of two choices if you want to be a professional actor. You have to go either to LA or you have to go to New York. Mm -hmm. uh, never mind Chicago, never mind Seattle, never mind Florida. There, there are all these other venues out there, but if you really want to be a professional actor, and now this is 1975, 76, mm -hmm. you know, so Chicago is, of course, a great theater scene now, and I'm sure it was great then too, but back then, it was either you go to New York and you get the little apartment or you come to L.A. and you're in the sun and you're able to be poor, but you're in the sun. So right. that's why we came to Los Angeles. And one of the first, you, you know, the job, the, the plan was come to Los Angeles, get a job, get a job in the theater, get a good job in the theater. That was kind of the mantra in our minds and the I came out and almost the first I want to say the first week but certainly the first month I was there I got a job doing children's theater hmm. doing puppets and things like that and also in our company was like Brian Stokes Mitchell wow yeah. and, I mean I'm saying this was a good group of people yeah. There was Jenny Gago, there was Rick Fitz, there were all these great, great, great talents in here, but we were doing hand puppets. We were wearing leotards, you know, and doing, oh, da. we were doing uh, multi-ethnic American leaders was the name of our show. Uh, for short, we called it Meal, M-E-A, Multi-Ethnic American Leaders, Part 1, and there was Meal 2, because at that point the government was paying for children's theater to go in the schools and do, uh, you know, I'm the first woman uh, doctor and I'm uh, the black man who founded Chicago, uh, Jean-Baptiste Pointe-Sable, and I am uh, Father Junipero Serra, of course. We, 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 we didn't do the thing about him enslaving, but it was like that he was Hispanic, you know. We, you know, it, it, was, it was all about multiple, culture, multiple cultures, and, and, uh, and it was a delightful show. And a lot of people ask me, they go, what, what is the greatest moment you had? What was the most important year, moment you had as an actor? And they assume I'm going to say Groundhog Day or Thelma and Louise. And, and certainly those were great moments. The greatest moment 
I ever had was when I was doing the children's theater. And we went into a school south of San Francisco. In fact, uh, Governor Jerry Brown at the time, we performed outside of San Francisco and he saw us and he named us the official theater company wow. of California. And, mm. and there were like 12 of us. And each cast had like three or four people. And it had one person who was a musician. That was Brian. Brian was a musician. In our little cast, I was the musician. I played the guitar and the piano. And, and then we all put on hats and did puppets and all this stuff. Yeah, you know, we were, we did the, we went into a school. I want to say it was in Daly City, around Daly City, south of San Francisco, where they had had race riots and a couple kids, I think, had been killed. It was a real serious situation. And we went into the school under police escort, into the school. And we normally played elementary schools and preschools. Like, why on earth they expect us with leotards and puppets mm. to play at this tough high school and where they just had terrible, terrible problems. And so we get up and we start doing our... I'm Lewis, he's Clark, and we are about to embark on a journey that will take us far away. I'm Lewis, and he's Clark, and we would like to remark that we just got, you know, it was just yeah. amazing. We wow. did this thing, and they were booing, and they were throwing <laughs> cans of Coke at us. I don't mean empty cans. I mean full cans to where if it hit oh. you, you would go to the hospital. Oh, wow. We're dodging these, and we, we keep playing, and we keep doing. And the last story we did is Jean-Baptiste Jean Pointe du Sable, the black man who founded Chicago, and Rick Fitz, um, who was uh, – the representative black man in our particular cast of four. We had Jenny Gago, who was Hispanic, and me, who was bald white guy. And then, you know, I'm holding up my end of the file. And then you had Rick. Now, Rick Fitz is like a spirit, a glowing flame. You cannot look at this man without just bursting into joy. I mean, great actor, great singer, fabulous drummer, uh, just terrific. And so he he's portraying this character at the end, and he sings the last song of the show, which is just amazing. And he finishes the last song of the show, and everybody in the auditorium, so we're talking those auditoriums held, you know, 1,500, 1,800 kids, mm. stood up, started screaming and applauding and stomping their feet wow. and just That's clapping, great. clapping, clapping. We came in under police escort and we left and we got a letter from the superintendent of the schools saying that the riot stopped and they attributed it to our performance and the fact that we never quit and we never stopped. And, uh, and it was a beautiful show, and it went to the hearts of the kids. And That's it was that time in my life I went like, that is what art can do. Mm. Art can come into your life, and it can make the world a better place. And that was probably my key, my bestest experience as a, a performer, as an actor. 
certainly the most important. Yes. Oh my God. Fantastic. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I just made that glare worse, didn't I? <laughs> I was trying oh, to not, make no, that glare. It's not, it's not, oh, it's not even, I'm just yeah, saying, no, I go, no. oh, oh. I can well, want to go into the, your writing. I, I saw that you're credited with co-writing true stories with David Byrne. The right. Heads. How did that happen? How did that come about? Oh man! What a great film, by the way. One yeah. of my what a great film! Yeah. I mean, oh it's my terrific. gosh, it is so. It's awesome. Anyway, go ahead, please. Sorry. Well, my girlfriend Beth and I. Uh, you have to understand Beth. So we were boyfriend and girlfriend in college, and then we went. You know, she 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 couldn't get arrested. I mean, she couldn't get cast in school plays. You know, she won't get, get cast as an actress in real plays, uh, but she was a delightful kind of spritey kind of person. And when we go to graduate school, which was the only place we could stay together, otherwise, you know, I'd be going somewhere acting. We'd be, we'd have to split up, and I didn't want to split up. Uh, so at the University of Illinois, she said, you know, Stephen, I think maybe instead of becoming an actress, maybe I should become a writer. And I'm lowing like, sure, why not? It's just as impossible as being in, you know, why not one of us at least become a dental hygienist? That way at least someone in, is gonna be able to pay the rent. So she, the first full length play she wrote which which happened at the end of that year. She began to write this. Uh, she won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. The play went to Broadway. It ran for several years. Uh, oh she got gosh. a film deal. It was a big deal. And and uh, I remember I I, I remember. <laughs> God, this is one of my memories that's better than Stevie Ray Vaughan for me. So Beth is sitting in the breakfast nook, which was a architectural feature in the little LA house we were living in that was so small, only someone Beth's size could get in the nook. And that's where she was typing. And she had this stack of pages and she says, would you like to, to read my play? I'm reading, I'm, I'm writing this play. And I said, what's your play called? And she says, right now I'm calling it Old Granddaddy's Dying. And I go, oh, better. That's, that's a tough one. So I'm, I'm fully prepared for reading something that's going to be, hmm, you know. And I start reading this play. And it was not just good. It was stratospheric. It was, I'm reading these pages. I'm going like, oh, my God. What, what, what? And I'm reading, I'm reading this, and she's typing, and she's typing, and I'm reading the play. I'm just typing, and it was like sex when it's good. She finishes the last page just as I'm getting to it. I'm in tears. She hands the last page to me. I read it, and I go, my God, this is not just a good play. This is one of the, and I took Tony Graham White's theater history class for two years. This is one of the best plays I've ever read in my life. This is fantastic, but you cannot have a play called Old Granddaddy's Dying. I mean, you can't. And she said, well, I love Chekhov so much. What if I call it the Three Mississippi Sisters? And I go, I 
baby, I just don't know about that. And, and she says, well, what would you name it? And I said, well, you have the youngest sister, babe, who shoots her husband because she doesn't like the way he looks. And then there's talk about him beating him up. You know, the legal term for that would be uh, a crime of passion. Why don't you call it crimes of passion? So that's what she changed the name to, crimes of passion. So we were going to do crimes of passion as a uh, equity waiver play in Los Angeles with all of our friends, all of our buddies. And so the girl who was going to play the middle sister, Meg, was Sharon Ulrich, who was a wonderful actress. She's in New York now. I'm sure she's still a wonderful actress. And she gave a copy of Crimes of Passion to her agent, Richard. And Richard kept it on his desk, never looked at it. And then his, his boyfriend from New York came, Gilbert, and Richard handed him this pile of plays because Gilbert liked to read plays on the plane going from L.A. to New York. And I get a call from Gilbert Parker from Kennedy Airport hmm. saying, hello, this is Gilbert Parker. Um, is Beth Henley in the house? Is this the right number? I go, yeah, 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 Beth, Beth is right here. And so I go, and again, it's just, if you could see Beth's face, she's on the phone, and then she's like looking at me like, That was Gilbert Parker from New York, and he wants to help me with my play. Uh, he's the agent for Lillian Hellman and for Mark Medoff and um, all the Pulitzer Prize winners, and uh, he says he can help me with my play. And I go, well, great. And Gilbert called back and said, uh, Stephen, uh, Beth said you gave the title Crimes of Passion to the play. Well, we can't have old granddaddy's dying. And we can't have Crimes of Passion either because Ken Russell is doing a movie in London called Crimes of Passion. And even though you can't copyright uh, a title, I think she ought to have another title to her play. So Beth turns to me and says like, so What's the new title company? <laughs> oh my and I said, well, we had Crimes of Passion. Why don't we just change it to something more colloquial like Crimes of the Heart? So she changed the title to Crimes of the Heart. It won the Pulitzer Prize. Well, first it won the Great American Play Contest in Louisville. And then from there, uh, it was off-Broadway and it won the Pulitzer Prize. Then it moved on to Broadway and ran for two or three years. And then it got a film deal and all sorts of things. Nominated for Tony Award, uh, nominated for Academy Award, Best Scream. I mean, the works. And so Beth went from zero to hero with this one play. Uh, now, we were talking about David Byrne. So one of the people who was a huge fan of Beth's writing was Jonathan Demme and Evelyn Purcell. Uh, they used to be married. Uh, Evelyn was a filmmaker in Australia and Jonathan had just done something like uh, Melvin and Howard. I think it was around that period in Jonathan's filmography. And he was just working on Stop Making Sense. 
everybody wanted a crack at doing the film version of Crimes of the Heart. Everybody wanted, and Evelyn wanted to do it, Jonathan wanted, everyone wanted to do it. So people were, were so Beth and I were leaving Pilates one day, and uh, this was before Pilates was cool. Yeah, it fact, was, there was it a was, long time it, was, it was, wasn't cool. <laughs> it was, this was when Pilates was underground. This is <laughs> yeah. like, like we're just really strange people did Pilates. So we were leaving Pilates and a car pulls up to the curb. We're over in Hollywood and it's Jonathan Demme. And Jonathan rolls down his window and says, hey, uh, I'm just having a screening of a first cut of the movie I'm doing. Do you guys want to come over to the Academy and watch the movie? And we go, sure, man. And so uh, Beth and I get in our little car and we go over to the Academy, which we had never been to before. And if you have you guys been in the Academy? I the, have. You oh, have. have. <laughs> so I have. Let me let me just tell you, yeah. the Academy is 1,900 seats, huge, 1,900 red velvet seats, red velvet curtains, giant screen, enormous. We Beth and I walk in. There were like four people in the theater, mm. you know, David and Chris and Tini and, and, and Tina Weymouth and uh, Jerry. So the talking heads were in there, Jonathan Demme, Evelyn Purcell, and me and Beth mm. in this theater. So David Byrne is kind of sitting behind me, but kind of watching like, with, like where is he laughing? Where is he not laughing? Uh, David's very intent on being as good as he possibly can be. He is not a slacker. He works hard. And so after the, and I really wasn't that familiar with the Talking Heads music, except maybe burning down the house. You know, I, you know, I was more into Ella Fitzgerald at that time, I think. And so we went out to dinner that night, Jonathan and Evelyn and Beth and I and David uh, Byrne, and David was sitting across from me just saying, tell me all the parts of the movie that you really hated. The parts of the movie where it really dragged and, and it should be shorter, right? And I'm going, no, David, I loved it. I loved every part of it. It was amazing. And the, the way Jonathan built it, was, it's like could be one of the best live performance rock and roll movies I think I could ever imagine seeing. I mean, if you're not doing something like Woodstock, where the sound is whatever it is and it's this event, but this was, the music was magnificent and the way it builds through the, it was just terrific. So anyway, uh, it feels like it was the next day. It was shortly after that where Beth got the call to go over to David Byrne's house and apparently David lived, you know, not far from where Beth and I lived. And so, he wanted to talk to Beth about writing this movie, True Stories. And, uh, and then uh, Beth came back home and said, I just talked to David and I have no idea what he's talking about. And so I said, maybe he should talk to you about it because you're good with structure and story ideas and things like that. So I went over and talked to David and we talked for about two hours 
and I took some notes and I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. Let me go home and try to put together a story or something of this. I'll write it up and I'll give it to you tomorrow. And if you like it, you can hire me. And if you don't like it, you don't have to hire me and you could keep whatever you want. No obligation. Mm. And so that night I wrote an outline for true stories and wrote about 30 pages of dialogue on an old Macintosh computer, the old <laughs> Mac 512. <laughs> and, and I gave it, I gave it to David and then he hired me mm. and then he hired Beth and said, you'll both write it. And so Beth and I wrote, and the catch was we had to finish the first draft in 19 days. So Beth and I holed up in a room and we wrote the script in 19 days, knowing that it probably could have been better. And we gave it to David and we didn't hear from David for like a year. Oh, like my gosh. a year. Uh, and so I'm just oh. thinking like, well, uh, <laughs> wow. this is, this ain't gonna be any good. So anyway, I'm driving up in the Hollywood Hills one day and there's a knock on my window and it's David Byrne on a bicycle. And, and I'm like, and he's going, roll your window down, roll your window. Sorry, I, sorry I've been out of touch. We went on the road, we went on tour, we made an album and all sorts of things. Are you gonna be at your house later today? And I, I go, yeah, David, can I come by this afternoon? I want you to hear something. So. Anyway, as a preface to what I'm about to tell you, uh, at an earlier meeting when David was David wanted to do uh, a video in our backyard because Beth and I had a pool because of Crimes of the Heart. Beth and I had a pool in our backyard, <laughs> and so uh, he David was shooting a video for MTV of road to nowhere and he wanted a pool to shoot the underwater scenes in so he said can i can i shoot the underwater scenes in your pool i go sure david so david shot the under so when you go on the wow. internet now and you watch uh road to nowhere there are underwater scenes in that that was in our swimming pool now at the same time david is filming that i'm on top cooking salmon for David and Beth and everybody at the end of eating. So David is saying this pre predates him trying to hire Beth and then hiring me to write this movie. Beth said, well, what are you working on now? And he says, well, I want, you know, everywhere we go, a true story, you know, everywhere we go with the talking heads, we stop off at 7-Elevens and every place to get coffee and things. And I love these magazines that say true stories. They have true stories in them. And, you know, they're hilarious. You know, um, space alien tries to make love with a weed whacker. And, and you know, all these crazy stories. So I wanted to do a movie where everybody in the movie has one of these true stories. And then Beth said, well, you should talk to my sweetie because uh, he can... Uh, read people's tones and david turns to me david goes what you read tones and 
And I go, wait, wait, it, it's just as a weird story. It's just, it was just as a weird story. You know, from my, my past, you know, I would, uh, when Beth and I were getting together in college is, um, I could hear tones coming from people. Yes, I know. It's really crazy. And Beth and I were not boyfriend and girlfriend really at this time. And come to think of it, this would be a great thing to use on a woman to try to get her interested in you. You know? <laughs> so I'm saying, like, I have this thing where when I'm around some people, I can hear a tone and I know about them. I know about them from the tone. And it came from this movement class I had when I was a sophomore in, in college is where I discovered this. Our movement teacher, we had uh, a seminar out by the lake, Lake Dallas or whatever. And our movement teacher said, we're going to go in a circle and everybody just say the first thing that comes into your mind. And so people were going around a circle going hobbit, hobbit, Frodo, far out, cool. And it gets to me, and I look across the fire pit at our teacher, and I said, I get that you're not who you say you are. And he says, w what? Huh. I said, you, your name is not your name. You have an assumed name, and your real initials are JK or JL. I know. You just said, say the first thing that came to your head. That's what came into my head. And so then we went around and the next people go, beer, weed, Frodo, get high, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, we finish our retreat. I'm headed for my car and out of the shadows comes my movement teacher. And he says, why did you say that? And I said, well, you said, say the first thing that came into your head. And so we're all holding hands and I heard this tone in my head and I just looked at you and I knew that you... He says, because it's true. Oh, my name is not my name. I do have an assumed name, and my initials are JK, just like you said. Now, I'm asking you, how did you know that? And I said, it's just this tone thing. So anyway, I'm driving with Beth in the car. This is still in college. And I tell Beth this story. And she said, do I make a tone? And I go, yeah. What do you know about me? And I go, nothing, really. She says, tell me what you hear. And I said, well, Beth, you have three tones, actually. And they're in harmony. Uh, usually most people have one tone. Some people have two. Very rarely have I heard three. And it's rare that they're in harmony. And they are in the male range. Uh, you, it's a third and a fifth. Usually a third tone kind of implies that there is a, uh, a you, you, you kind of rule your life by spirit. And then if it's a fifth, it is you rule your life kind of by justice. But I've rarely heard people who have a tone. And she says, you can hear that and you can say that? And I go, yeah, baby. And she says, we are going to be so rich. What we're going to do is we're going to go into business together. 
We're going to charge people 25 cents, maybe even a dollar. I'm going to bring them to you. You hold their hands. Do whatever you do. Sit on the floor, sit cross-legged, and just tell them what these tones are. Just just say just what you said just now, like it's this, it's this. Oh, it's a conflicting tone between justice and... Th oh, it's perfect. And we're going to put the money in a jar and we're going to be partners. And that was pretty much the beginning of our 16-year relationship. Was <laughs> And we had the money in the jar and we kept putting the money in the jar. So this is the story I told David Byrne <laughs> at our pool when when he's doing Road to Nowhere. And so after Beth and I write true stories, year we don't hear David Byrne, he, he comes back and he says, can I bring my guitar? I want you to hear something. So David said, I'm sorry. I kind of rewrote the whole script you guys did, but I did write a song based on your story and I'm putting it in the movie. And he sat in my living room and played Radiohead for me. Mm. Radiohead, I'm picking up something good. Radiohead, the song. <laughs> my head is like a radio, you know? And so radio, Radiohead that David wrote for True Stories, uh, was based on my story of what happened to me in college and Beth and I making all that money, like at least 12 or $13, uh, reading people's tones in, in college. And then the band on a Friday in England loved David Byrne and loved the movie True Stories, and they loved the song Radiohead, so they changed their name to Radiohead. Wow. And so the band Radiohead got their name from the David Byrne song, which got from my story, which happened to me when I was at a movement retreat my sophomore year before Joan Potter tried to kick me out of SMU. Jeez. <laughs> oh, oh, what, well, what, see, the thing is, looking at life we we have a, always have a very good sense of really where things are going to end and and we know like when we go to a sushi place and we get sick we go we're done there <laughs> not coming back we know where it ended but we can't really peg when we like sushi in the first place you know it's hard to track like how is it that i ended up eating enough sushi to where I'm going to get bad sushi. I'm never going to eat it again, ever. <laughs> we, we have a hard time tracking of where our affections and our passions start. Like mine started, I know, when I got sick and was in study hall and reading King Lear. And that was the only thing I could do. I could say, that's where I started. But... <laughs> It's very difficult to find where your passions begin. It's much easier to know where things ended. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so um, I've been lucky in that I've had a good memory and I wrote stuff down to where I'm able to track kind of my origin story. Uh. Like Marvel <laughs> origin <laughs> stories. 
That's fantastic. That's one of my favorite terms. I love origin stories. It's <laughs> yes. one of the things I love about doing the show is getting to hear, you know, hear the connections between all these things, because I, I mean, even I, in my career, I started as a child and I've written a memoir about it, but I had to like, even though I have all the memories, putting them in the right order and seeing what thing moved into the next thing and why, and you know, it, it just, it just endlessly fascinates me. That's, that's an, that's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I ask about uh, Spaceballs, the the Mel Brooks movie, I mean, we're talking big time now for you here. What yeah. is it like working with Mel and John Candy, Rick Moranis, and everyone else in like a great cast? Did this uh, this feel like just like a huge stepping stone for you at this point? God, yes. And <laughs> and I mean, the most important thing was the silliest thing is that my parents knew who Mel Brooks was. <laughs> so at the time, I was doing a play by Michelle de Gelderode at the Los Angeles Theater Center with Bill Pullman. And, and my current wife, Ann Hearn, was playing my wife in that show. And uh, Bill Pullman said, I invited Mel Brooks to see the show tonight. Uh, and Barabbas was like a really violent, crazy play. Bill was fantastic fantastic and he's fantastic and everything he's just one of the best actors we've ever known and afterwards in the lobby mel brooks he introduces you know i have a I, there's a part there's a part in this show, you know there's a part in this show you know not a big part not a big part but maybe you know you you, you want to try out want to try for the part and i go well, sure hell yes and it was to be sergeant of the guard and uh I went to Mel Brooks's office and worked with him for about 30 minutes. And can you be bigger? Can you be? <laughs> you have captured our stunt doubles. I go, oh, yeah. Can you be even bigger than that? Oh, yes, Mel. I'll be as big as you want. And so I got that part. And I remember I felt like, oh, my God, this is like Mel Brooks. This is an A film. This is like a huge step for me from doing Barabbas by Michelle de Geldero. That was my huge step before going like, oh, my God, this is like amazing for me. And I told mom and dad that, you know, I'm working with Mel Brooks and they were, oh, well, maybe this acting thing isn't such a boondoggle after all. <laughs> and uh, and I remember the AD called and told me, said, show up, we're gonna do your scene on Monday. So I showed up on the set Monday and they didn't get to my scene. And he said, well, come back tomorrow. So I think I was making like a thousand dollars to do space balls. So I came Monday, no, Tuesday, no, Wednesday, waited all day no thursday and now i'm getting really depressed i'm thinking like i think they cut me out of this movie and so i i said are are they gonna finally shoot the scene tomorrow friday and the and the ad said what do you care you get paid every day you show up yeah. i go wait <laughs> wait a minute wait you mean I get a thousand dollars a day for sitting here doing nothing but eating snacks? Yeah, you get a thousand dollars a day. So we called you five days in a row. That's five thousand dollars. I went like, this is the career for me. You know, I get money for nothing and chicks for free. This is fantastic. And and so uh, they finally got to me at the end of Friday. They finally shot that scene. And uh, 
God, it was, yes, it was a huge, that went on the resume after then. Oh, you know, that went right. on the resume for sure. Yeah. My gosh. Well, how was, how was Mel, uh, I mean, to work with as, as a director, obviously his fantastic. Was make it bigger, but yeah. No, fantastic. Is that, you know, he had a, such a great and sensitive barometer as to what was funny. You know, he would just watch things realistically and he would come back like a doctor going, that was funny, that was funny. On a one to 10, that was seven. Let's see if we could do eight. And I think if you do bigger, it's gonna be even funnier, okay? Number eight this time, let's go for eight. Okay, and if we have time, we'll go until we get to 10, but this is good. You know, so he had this barometers to what was funny and not funny. Oh, could you try this? Maybe if you try that, you know, oh, there's a good, you know, it wasn't like I had that much to do in the scene. You, you know, a lot of it is uh, the joke of you have to hear stunt doubles and then the people turn around and it's the girl has the beard and the smoke and the cigar and everything. It's a side <laughs> gag more than anything else. But uh, Mel Brooks had such a, and he was not goofy as a director. He was very much like a physician. He was very much surgical and like a doctor and very clear and, and gave you very clear direction, very clear kind of uh, encouragement without flattery. You, you know, this is good. What we're, where we're at is good. This is fine. This could be in the movie. Let's just, let's try, let's try. We have time. Let's do some more. You know, and he encourages you to play. And if you do any kind of comedy, you have to be able to play. Mm. Got to. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I, I never, I never really had that experience other than doing a couple of sitcoms. But it was that's a very different environment. And uh, oh. but yeah, not not as you know, but not the same uh, that that same sort of open creative pool that you've got to dive into and yeah and have and, and have fun because that that's what ends up on screen most definitely uh which succumb did you do i worked on i did not start i did not do a whole series but i i did an episode of the jeffersons oh god um, yes and well, I did there a, you go i did a yeah now now who was your do you remember who your director was i do not i do not i remember this the experience very well because it was a very controversial episode and it was it was very difficult to do in a, in a comedy because it was actually about i played the son of a clansman that moves uh -huh. into the into the uh, you know the apartment building with the jeffersons and he has a meeting and of course george shows up and all you know chaos chaos breaks loose so it was a very it was very tense in a way but but the bottom line was the comedy had to shine through first and foremost, you know, no matter what you were doing. And I got to watch, good grief, Sherman Helmsley. I mean, these, you know, these consummate right. performers really just shape a show throughout the week. And that was that was a really extraordinary experience for me. It uh, I worked with John Rich on uh, I think I was doing uh, the Tom Rhodes show at the time, Mr. Rhodes. And John Rich was one of Norman Lear's big directors. He mm -hmm. worked with him a lot. So I didn't know if you worked with him on the Jeffersons, but I was able to talk with him at lunch at one time. And he was, you talked about the different world of sitcom. Mm -hmm. And it's a different world now than it was uh, even when I started doing sitcoms uh, 
you know, I think my first sitcom was Alice. Even mm. then, even at that point in time, the, the, the sitcoms show was kind of treated as a short play. And you yeah. rehearsed it, you know, day one, day two, day three, you show it for the network and that's when you get fired. Then uh, <laughs> day four is the camera people watch it. Then day five, you do it for the, you do it a couple times and you do it for the live audience. Mm -hmm. But it is like you're doing a play. Uh, you know, now there is so much rewriting of the scripts. Mm -hmm. It isn't, it isn't, at least my experience back uh, when I first started doing sitcoms, and I guess I did them, I guess some in the 80s, maybe. Did I do any in the 70s? I don't think so, the late 70s. But the, as I recall, the scripts kind of remained not these massive changes all the time, mm. that, that like you had a whole new script to learn the next day. And so by the time the audience is coming in, you've got all these new scenes that you're trying to work on. Mm. And, and, you know, when you're working on a film, like you're working with Mel Brooks, uh, mm. or you're working on Groundhog Day with Harold Ramis, you're working with great, great directors enormously great directors who have this uh, view of the story, know what they want, and really create a safe space for you to kind of do comedy in. And whatever the key of that comedy is, they frame it. And sitcom used to be a shorter version of that, but now it seems to be a lot more dangerous in mm -hmm. that there's a lot more input coming in from different people. And sometimes you have massive rewrites uh, right before you have to go on in front of the audience. Wow. Uh, even in between takes, you know, they come in, we have a, we have a new scene. Oh, uh, gosh. I remember when I, uh, oh, well, anyway, it, it's with the recent shows, it seems to happen more. And, and I don't know what the mechanics are of that. But it's interesting. It's a different kettle of fish now to do a sitcom. It is a whole, <clears throat> it's a whole different animal. It's a whole stress thing. It's really Man. amazing. I can't, oh. I can't imagine. I can't. I really can't. That's oh. that's incredible. Well, since you, since you brought up Groundhog Day, we want to, of course, ask about that. <laughs> I mean, what's rated always one of the best films of comedies of all time. Yeah. Uh, just one of my <laughs> favorite films ever. Uh, how did that come about for you? Well, it was it was a, a stroke of luck for me. I was I was working on a another movie at the time, Calendar Girl, and uh, that's when I got the call to audition for Groundhog Day. And so we were shooting in Paris, California, which is about two hours away from L.A. or something, two and a half hours away. So I drove back, auditioned for Ned for Harold Ramis, came back. And on Calendar Girl, um, my brother on that show was Kurt Fuller, and he played a, a deaf, you know, mm -hmm. he couldn't speak or, he, you know, and so I had to sign the script, to him, everything to him, and he would sign back to me. And so it was great because Columbia at the time gave us signing lessons for weeks before we, we did the show. That was one of the great things that happened as an actor, you know, you get these little benefits of learning sign at the time. So 
for the only time in my career, we are on location. They had no room at the end, at the, and so they put Kurt and I in the same bedroom. Mm. Never does that happen, ever. <laughs> no. So they put me and Kurt in the same bedroom, so we're in the, the, the two beds, and it was, so we're pretending we're at, like, you know, summer camp, and the lights are out, and he goes like, so, you know, you up to anything now? And I have learned by hard experience that an actor never wants to hear that someone else got an audition. You know, they just want to hear that you're leaving the business and opening like a barbecue stand somewhere. Exactly. You know, yeah. you know, so I just, oh, Kurt, you know, just the same old, same old, just knocking on, you know, whatever, whatever happens. I said, anything happening for you? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Harold Ramis is a good friend of mine, and uh, they, uh, I'm going to be in the new Bill Murray movie. It's called Groundhog Day, and I have this great part, Ned Ryerson, hilarious like this insurance salesman. And I'm like lying in bed now with my head about to explode. Oh, and gosh. I realized, yeah, you got it. There's no way this story could have a happy ending. Either, either it, it's going to be a terrible day for Kurt or a terrible day for me or a terrible day for both of us, you know? So now I'm stuck and I don't say a word. The next day I get a call back. Uh, so I have to drive again, the two and a half hours over there audition for Harold Ramis. I did on the way home, on the way back to the set two and a half hours on my phone. And it was one of these phones back then, you know, yep. one, one of these, you know, <laughs> no, the it was, brick, it was, it was, it was, it was, like, yeah, it was, it was, yes. it was one of those with the antenna, like a, like know? a military satellite, yeah, phone. military, yeah. you know, walkie talkie. And yeah. it was my agent saying, you got the part. Wow. So I got back to Paris, California and Kurt had found out I got the part too. And he was so, of course, enraged, so hurt, so betrayed. And and I completely under, understand that. Uh, I went, I did the movie Groundhog Day, opening day, uh, the opening show, Groundhog Day, was in uh, West, Westwood. Westwood. And uh, Kurt Fuller is waiting in front of the theater. And he says, I'm going to watch the movie with you. So he comes in wow. and we watch Groundhog Day together. And then at the end of it, he says, I'm still pissed off. You got my part, but at least you did a good job with it. And he hugged me and he said, congratulations. Mm. And he walked away. And I don't think in this business maybe somewhere in the back of my mind there's been a case of grace under fire mm. greater portrayed greater than kurt fuller but mm. he was so kind and generous mm. like for me i'd be suicidal but we we've worked together since then where he paid me back plenty you know <laughs> we, we you know <laughs> where he where he had the you know, there's the schlemiel and the schlemazel. That's <laughs> This is the thing that makes Groundhog Day so great. Okay, you have this picture behind you, right, mm -hmm. of, of yeah. me, Ned Ryerson, and Bill Murray. Mm -hmm. The thing that makes Groundhog Day one of the greatest 
comedies of all time is in in Jude, Jewish comic thought that there's always a shlemiel and a shlemazel. A shlemiel is the Jerry Lewis. He's the guy who spills the soup on you. The shlemazel is the guy who gets the soup spilled on him. The thing is, for comedy, you need both. You need the shlemiel, you need the shlemazel. In Groundhog Day, in this particular scene behind you, I am the shlemiel. And mm -hmm. Bill Murray is the schlamazel. What is so remarkable about Groundhog Day, without even batting an eye, in the next scene, Bill Murray is going to be the schlemiel. Nanny mm -hmm. McDowell is going to be the schlamazel. <laughs> Bill is going to be in the diner, stuffing his mouth with cake and drinking coffee out of the pot. And it is effortless. What Bill does is like a magic show because he goes from being arrogant to being the world like us the everyman character to being the lunatic like in the in the diner to being manic with the kids with the snow where like please please let me do something with time to being the jilted lover to being the sincere lover and then being the hero and it happens like this and it's seamless mm. and it there are very few and i think you know i think it certainly was a performance that's worthy of a best actor performance because you take a, the way i you know it's that time of year mm -hmm. where we vote it's on the is. academy awards even though yeah. we've had very few movies this year but i kind of vote the same way you know, Jerry West talks about uh, a, a team, and that is what does the individual player contribute to the team? Not whether the player is good or not, but what would that team be if somebody else that was good was in that part? If there was anybody other than Bill Murray in that part, Groundhog Day probably would have been, you know, a C, a B film. I mean, it would have mm -hmm. been clever. It would have been cute. But Bill Murray, his heart and soul, what he gives to it, elevates the movie to grandness. And it, it makes it a film, and it's supported by the script, Danny Rubin's script, Harold Ramis's brilliant direction. It's, it's helped by all those, but they had to have the same vision. Mm -hmm. They had to have a vision that this is going to be a hero's journey and not just a goofy movie where Bill goes nuts. It's going to be a hero's journey. Danny Rubin saw it in the script. Harold Ramis saw it in the direction. And they had an actor in Bill Murray that could do that. And that's what makes that movie so incredible, I think. Whenever I watch it, I go like, amazed. I'm amazed. <laughs> I'm amazed well, I mean, at the performance. You, you're, you're a big part of that. I mean, I, it's, it's like it, it's, it, you are part of that team, and 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 in many ways, you come very close to stealing the scene away from, um, from from well, Bill, which it's, is extraordinary. It's my purpose. It's that. <laughs> that's what I have to. The problem with the prop. This is what I contribute to the movie, and I and I know I contribute to the movie because they made Thai tax and sandwiches named after me. So <laughs> yeah, that's the yeah, that's the Ned Ryerson tie tack, the Ned Ryerson sandwich. So I know Ned Ryerson made important. 
But the difficult thing about a movie that's structurally based like Groundhog Day, the, the repeated day, it is so audiences have no patience for repeated beat. Yeah. They don't. When they see like it's a murder movie and the guy, they see the murder, the first time he kills somebody, it's this. The second time it's like, I'm going to go get popcorn. I know he's going to kill this person. Okay. And it's like, I don't care anymore. The audience has no patience for repeated beat. So you have to find some way to re-energize the repeated beat. And what I do is I re-energize act one. The, re, the new act one, the beginning of the day, is going to begin with a new threat that we didn't know Bill was going to have at the beginning of this movie. He begins this movie and Ned isn't there right at the beginning. And we just, you know, makes me laugh when I think of it. We think it's going to be Bill and the groundhog and him having to do that speech over and over again, which, of course, he does five different ways. You know, bad, well, brilliantly, terribly, all these different ways Bill does it. And he does it straight, you know, just not commenting. I am the re-energized, I am, I am his his foil. I am the the difficulty he is facing with the repeated day personified is I have to meet this guy and how am I going to deal with it? In fact, it leads to the one scene in Groundhog Day, which was improvised because, mm. you know, everybody says you and Bill had to have improvised a lot. Well, we didn't. We couldn't because the day has to be repeated. So not yeah. only did we not improvise, my gestures had to be exact. Oh, Phil, Phil had to be the same finger at the same time. I had to step on the same brick in the street to turn. Oh, Phil, Phil Connor, is that you? I had to run to him. The scene that was improvised was Bill coming out of the hotel where it was a, Ned, Ned Ryerson. I thought that was you. And he starts hugging me, Ned, you know, it's been so long. Are you doing anything this afternoon, Ned? Can you call in sick? And I'm like, uh, and and like, we didn't rehearse it. You know, there was a different scene in the script. Bill said something to Harold, can I try something? Harold Ramis set the scene up with four cameras, uh, a two shot and a, and a tighter two on the favored bill, two shot tighter to the favored me, four cameras going, boom, we did it. Bill did that take, boom. One time I ran away, I ran away down the street and Harold Ramis says, I got it, we can move on. And, and that was it, because he had the scene covered. No need to do it again. Uh, you know, when Bill punched me, you know, we got it. What's in the movie is the first take of the punch. Oh. Harold Ramis, you know, I, I said I said to him, where do you want me to look after Bill punches me? And he says, you can do that? And I said, well, yeah, I'm not doing anything. I'm just doing a dancer turn, and I'll stop wherever you want me to, to look. He says, well, can you look over at the courthouse? I go, sure. So Amazing. I'll just do a turn, look at the courthouse, and fall out of frame. And so 
I took stage combat. Apparently, Bill took stage combat. We probably took it from the same people. Mm. And so when Bill goes back for the punch, I know to get ready. I turn, you know, as he comes through, look at the courthouse, spin, you know, just did the little dance turn. I learned at SMU dance class, just did the turn, <laughs> looked at the building, fell out of frame. And, you know, that's the one, they, the first take they used. And there were two other takes or three other takes we did, but Harold Remus said, man, now the first, first is best. It's perfect. So let's yeah. go with the first. So, you know, it doesn't take a lot of time to do comedy, but you have to have the right parameters. You have to have a good writer. You have to have a good director. And you have to have, you know, someone like Bill kind of at the, you know, is the focal point of the show, somebody who can do that and do that part and do that the way he did it. I read that they added a scene on for you because they liked your performance so much at the end. That was because of the way you were doing things? Oh, I don't know why, but uh, uh, I, I finished my work after about three weeks. I think it was about three weeks. And then Trevor Albert called me at home in LA and says, we want more Ned in the movie. <laughs> can you come back out? And I go, sure. And so uh, I flew back out, and it's around the time that they were going to do the slave auction, and so they had rented out this Veterans of Foreign Wars hall to do the slave auction, and uh, I'm in my trailer, and there's no scene. There's no scene. And so I'm asking Harold, is there... He says, there'll be a scene. We'll, we'll have a scene. We'll write a scene. It'll, it'll be fine. So I'm waiting, and day one, day two, ding, 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 and we're going to lose the hall. So it's the last day we have the hall. So I write a scene. I write a scene with all the kinds of insurance that he did to me, and it was the greatest day of my life. And then Bill had a joke at the end. And so I show I, – so Harold Ramis says, well, do you guys want to improvise something? I said, well, I wrote this scene. What do you think? So I show it to Harold Ramis, uh, written in longhand on my script. And he goes, oh, I'm fine with this. Bill, what do you think? Bill reads it goes, okay, let, let's just shoot this. So I had most of the lines. Bill had the joke. So I had learned my lines at least. And Bill did the joke. And then and then they all leave. And again, Harold Ramis always believes the comedy lives in the two shot. So he won a guy who was going to do single, single, single. And if you look at Groundhog Day, almost everything in Groundhog Day is two shot, group shot. It's mm. only at the end, kind of in the bedroom with Andy and Bill, where it kind of gets singled up. But most of Groundhog Day is in two shots and three shots, group shots. Uh, because Harold Ramis says you have to see my words, the schlemiel and the schlemazel in the same <laughs> mm. scene. You mm. have to see the the person who represents the world, and you have to see the person who is the uh, the wacky character in the same shot to see the reaction they have to each other. So I actually had written that scene for Groundhog Day and Thanks. never got any writing credit. Oh, it's well, awful, you know. <laughs> <laughs> incredible there was, there was, to all this talk this year even the book I, there was another book that came out this year talking about that Ramis and Murray did not get along during the uh, shooting was that tension felt on the set at all or no I didn't feel it you know you know I, I, I don't know I don't know anything about that I, 
but you, you know their their relationship went back way before Groundhog right. Day. You know, so you, you never know what happens with people, especially in this business. It, there's so much on the line, and it means so little. Right. You, you know, it, it's like you 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 work and you sweat and you live and you die for a show, and and just to show you, I I just finished. Um, uh, an episode of Minx for HBO, and in Minx I have to get punched. And I do a, I said oh, I'll fall. To, I said just to the girl who had to punch me. I said just once you start your follow through, just come back and just don't stop. Don't don't like mm -mm -mm, because I have to take my timing from you, and then I'll fall and I'll hit the ground, and. Uh, we get back to the green room and she was saying like, you know, have you done fights before? Have you done any hits or anything before? I said, yeah, yeah. And one of the other people in the room said, you know, he did one of the best stage punches <laughs> ever in Groundhog Day. And she says, oh, Groundhog Day, I've heard of that movie. Oh my. <laughs> I heard it was good. You know, I'll see it at some point. So you live and you sweat and you die <laughs> and you make your resumes and you make your reels of your all reels. your scenes and all this stuff. And here's <laughs> me and Groundhog Day. And then the next, just, you, you're not even in the ground yet. You're not even out of the coffin and you find out that all the things you did are done. You know, they go like, oh, oh, well, I'll, I'll have to see that sometime. Oh my you know, it's gone. When did you start realizing that this movie was a classic? I mean, when did you start that this movie is going to last? Ah, oh. well, Trevor Albert, our producer, thought it was going to be a hit. He called me at home and he said, Stephen, I think this movie is going to be a hit because the box office has gone up exponentially each weekend. And as you know, in show business, usually most of the people go to the first weekend. Then the next week, it's like 50% of what that first one is. It's so rare that it goes up the second week, let alone the third week, let alone the fourth. Mm -hmm. So Trevor called me a month after the show came out and said, I think we got a hit. Then when I started getting phone calls around February 2nd, from Zen Buddhist temples or people with 12-step programs or people, uh, all these different people want to, hey, the Oakland Raiders. I got a call to go up to Oakland to speak to the Oakland Raiders because their training film was Groundhog Day. It's like when people start saying, when newscasters are saying, well, I guess it's like Groundhog Day all over again in Washington. And they're not talking about Groundhog Day, the holiday. Art has usurped reality. They're mm. talking about a repeated event, which has nothing to do with the holiday of Groundhog Day, which is what the <laughs> core of the movie is. So that now <laughs> Groundhog Day doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean the groundhog seeing a shadow and all of that stuff. It is the repeated day. And, and I heard it on the damn weather channel and they should know. They go, well, I'm afraid it's going to be like Groundhog Day all over again in the Midwest. Hurricane Izzy is leaving a lot of debris and, and you know, we're, we're having ice storms. And I go, no, Groundhog Day is a different event than, than, but 
that's when I knew it was going to be a big deal. It's the only project I've been in that I could think of that art has usurped reality. <laughs> and that's a big deal. I, I've asked, I ask Ike this all the time about you know, his role in Escape to Witch Mountain. And, you know, he's been in so many other roles, but that's the one that's most, you know, I, he's most identified with it. You've been in like 200 roles. Is it, is it flattering for you that people remember you for this role like the most? Or Well, like... well, they remember me for different things. You know, there are a lot of people who remember me as a Jack. Jack Barker in Silicon Valley. A lot of people remember me as Stu Beggs in Californication because love that show. Yes. Yeah, you know, a lot of people. You know, is it true? They came up. A couple came up. My wife and I were eating California Pizza Kitchen, and uh, they and these strangers said to my wife, "Is it true about him?" And and she said, "We're eating pizza now. Could you please leave?" Yeah, you know, it, it's like it is flattering that so many people have seen me and in, have enjoyed me in so many different things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. And certainly when you're in something great like Groundhog Day, it, it is lucky because there aren't that many great things made. And it is truly a great film mm -hmm. because it makes you feel wonderful when you see the movie, no matter how many times you see it, you leave feeling wonderful. Actually, my, my daughter loves you, knows you from Glee first. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Everything else, she loves, loves that show so much. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Glee, what, what Glee it, was great. Glee yes. was a wonderful thing, you know, it was, uh, you, you know, just uh, splendid. I remember I had uh, open heart surgery in 2011 and uh the people on the show community wrote a show for Great me show. Yeah. and uh to do uh who's the boss to be the and the um the uh director came in and said no one knows about the surgery no one knows but us if you have any problems today and it had been six weeks since surgery so i'm still held together with like staples you know i'm, I'm like mm. my wife came with me with the blood pressure cup ready you know but they wanted to do something for me because you realize when something tr traumatic like that happens like you have to have surgery one of the things that's really scary if you survive the surgery is am i ever going to work again mm. so the people at community gave me a job to do that and the very next week, the people of Glee gave me a job too. So I had two jobs in a row and was able to continue my insurance. Because, <laughs> you know, I wasn't able to work for months mm -hmm. uh, because of recovering from the no auditions or nothing. So, you know, I, I always have a soft spot for the folks at Glee, you know. Before we, had, we, we want to talk about a show that's not been in the news at all, The Goldbergs. You are fantastic in there. I always look forward to the scenes that you have with uh, Wendy McClendon Covey. God, and, oh, she's fantastic. Now, now, how much fun is that just for you to do all the time? I love it. Uh, what the the and and the people who are in the business will understand this. 
you know, when you go to work on the Goldbergs, it was the same thing uh, I said when you worked on Deadwood. It was, you're working with the best of the best. And I don't mean the actors. I mean the prop people, the costume people, uh, the, the camera people, the sound people. Uh, everybody is so good at what they do, so professional. They have such fun doing what they do, and they make it a safe arena for you to do comedy in. It's mm. it's like an example on the Goldbergs. Buddy, our, our uh, prop guy, he said, in the script, it says that you are carrying an attache case. So I figure as Principal Ball, maybe the thing is that this is an attache case you received maybe when you got your doctorate as a gift for you. So I got something that was English because I felt like maybe, uh, maybe something English, 30 years old, it's kind of a scuffed leather here, and I think it looks like you. What do you, and I mean, you have these people, you have these people who come up with this stuff just for nothing, for, for no, out of nowhere, just to be creative and just to do the right thing. And, mm. you know, most of my scenes are with Wendy or with Sean at the school, you know, with, with Adam Goldberg or, or right. Beverly Goldberg. And we just have the best time in the world. And Wendy, again, everything comes from the top. And she makes, every time you go on the set, a holiday, a special event, a special occasion. It's a holy moment. She cares about every scene that she does. She wants you to have a good time. She wants everybody to have a good time. Uh, it's, it's, an, it's an enormous positive energy at the head of the cast, which you need. And you're not going to have and the workload she has and Sean have are just sure. enormous. And and you go like, oh my God. So I love working with them. I, I'm doing uh, Goldberg's this week, uh, oh, as a matter good. of fact. And I have, uh, it, it is again, another graduation show. I think I've done several of these. <laughs> uh, one, I'll just throw this out there because it's a, it's a great story. Uh, one of the graduation shows I did a few years back was for, I think, when Haley was graduating. And it was the one time I really got to meet and talk to George Siegel. And, and uh, I was sitting next to George, and we were, at this time, we were having graduation in a public park over in West LA. Mm -hmm. And I said, I feel so fortunate to sit next to you, George. I said, when I was in drama school, none of us wanted to be Brando. None of us wanted to be Clint Eastwood. We all wanted to be George Siegel. And he started laughing and said, what do you mean? You want me? I said, you were the guy who could do everything. You were handsome. You were goofy. You could be in comedies. You could be a villain. You could be uh, like country club you know, upper crust, whatever. You could be working man, tough. You could do anything. That's what we wanted. We wanted to be you. And George laughed and said, well, that, that's sweet. He says, do you know how I got into the business? And I go, no, I would love to know. This is 
an amazing story. So I don't know if any of your listeners remember, you have to be my age, Art Linkletter's House Party. Mm. So Art Linkletter had this TV show back in the 50s and the 60s, Art Linkletter's House Party. And he had a little segment on that show, which lives in the present day under new management, Kids Say the Darndest Things. Mm-hmm. So that was first on House Party. So Art Linkletter was this charming man, would have these kids on, and he would ask them questions. And then the kids would come, would say these things, right, that were hilarious. So anyway, George Siegel was 10 years old. This was his first job. He's there with his parents and everything. They have a bunch of kids there. Parents signed a waiver, said, yes, you could do kids say the darndest things, whatever. So they bring George into a room and says, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to ask you what daddy thinks of his secretary. And we want you to say, and and then they start coming up and then, you know, is it okay? And the parents signed off on it. And little Georgie Siegel is there and all the Hollywood writers, like 20 Hollywood writers are pitching ideas back and forth about what they're going to say to the secretary. And they come up with a few good punchlines. And they said, okay, now Georgie, the nice man, Art Linkletter, is going to come in and he's going to ask you, he's going to come in and rehearse with you for a little bit. Now, I want you to, when he asks you the question about daddy and his secretary, I want you to pretend like you're thinking for a little bit and then say this line. And they gave him the punchline of what to say, which was something that had lewd connotations for the nineteen for the early nineteen sixties. You know, it was the Beatles were lewd back then, you know. So you know, it was a very low bar. So, you know, it was certainly tame compared to modern day. And and then Art Linkletter came in and said, So this is the young boy? Yeah. So, son, hi, I'm Art Linkletter, and I'm going to ask you what do you think of that? And what are you gonna do? And he goes, I'm going to, and daddy, did. and they go, perfect. So you'll do that in front of the audience. And George Siegel said, I knew at that point, I wanted to be an actor because <laughs> all I had to do was pretend I was thinking. I didn't have to do anything. I had someone tell me where to sit, tell me where to stand, tell me what to say. And I just had to pretend I was thinking. And he goes, Stephen, that's why I went into show business. But of course, <laughs> that isn't why he was the ultimate actor, certainly of really? my generation. Yeah. The guy who could do everything, comedy to drama, a light comedy, serious leading man, murder, whatever you wanted. It was George Siegel, the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what a dear, dear spirit on the set of the Goldbergs, too. Again, like Wendy, like Sean, just like, you know, it's a wonderful set to be on. And I can't wait to to do it. <laughs> hey, I have one Goldberg story that's absolutely ridiculous. And I'll, I'll leave you with this one. Okay. Is that I get a call 6.30 one morning. Stephen, uh, we forgot you're in this episode. Uh, <laughs> it's a graduation episode you're, we're shooting today. How soon can you get over to Sony Studios? It's 6.30 in the morning. I said, uh... I don't know. There's traffic. I haven't. Well, we'll give you food here. Just get here as fast as uh, 730. I'll, I'll try to be there in an hour. So I get dressed. I, I go to the studio and uh, 
they said, so what we're going to do is we'll shoot over your shoulder for the first part of the stuff so you can have the stuff written, you can have the script of what you're saying in front of you. So, you know, we won't see the script. And then after lunch, we'll shoot on you for after lunch. Well, by the time we got after lunch, I still didn't know what I was supposed to say. So, but I remembered what Marlon Brando did. And so uh, for Jeff Garland, I remember I pasted a card on his forehead with my lines on it to where, you know, so, you know, thank you for this. And I was able to look at Jeff's forehead and go, well, you know, I, and pretend I was talking to him. And for Beverly, I, I, I put script pages on her bosom, you know, and I'm going, you know, you know. <laughs> I'm looking, you know, your kids are doing so well in this school, you know, and I'm like, oh, God. And, you know, and Lou Schneider was directing that show and he's directing our show this week. So I can't wait to again. Is the show being renewed yet? Did you get any word? We we don't have any word. And uh, we just had a read through of of this last show this week. And we are all everybody was saying, like, you know, we have fingers crossed. I've never been involved with a show that's been going on now nine years nine seasons mm. and people are going like let's do another one <laughs> you know let's yeah. do another one everybody so enjoys working with one another it's the the quality of the crew makes it easy and the quality of the writing makes it a delight and and so you know it's it's certainly been one of my most fun jobs i've had mm -hmm. Well, Stephen, we want to thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you for your time. You've been very gracious. Uh, huge, huge fan of all your work. <laughs> I said, we're going to get in the comments. You didn't ask about this. You didn't ask about that. <laughs> <laughs> but again, thank you so much for doing this. You got it. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you. And, just and you're welcome back anytime. You, yes. <laughs> you are one of you're one of my heroes. I have just I have just consumed your work with relish. Um, forever and so i just thank you for your work you know let alone for your time with us i really appreciate it thank you thank you guys yeah. thank you so much it was a lot of fun thank you you're welcome so this you're has welcome. been pop culture retro with jonathan rosen and mike eiserman and again special thanks to stephen tobolowski one of the best thank you adios stephen thanks <laughs> thank you for listening to pop culture retro where no one was hurt during the making of this podcast 